0: So what are your expectations when you come to church to worship? What are you expecting when we gather together as God's people to sing these songs about God, about who he is, his character, about what he's done and about what he means and who he is to us and the results of that? What do you expect to happen when you come to worship? I've always been taught that worship is incredibly powerful, that it's incredibly important. It's a really important part of what we do here in church. And obviously, for the context of this talk, I'm talking specifically about these songs of worship that the church has done over the centuries and sung so as to express praise to God. I've always been taught that it's a very powerful part of what we do. And um, I've come to realise that's not necessarily always the case with other churches and other people's expressions of worship Um, I've probably spoken about this before but I went to help plant a church in the States after graduating from university and I had no idea that worship was anything other than the worship I was used to in the UK and when I went to America particularly this part of America I went as the worship pastor of a church and I went to check out other churches and how things were done in those churches and where we were there would have been auditoriums full of people thousands of people, mega churches and during the worship people would literally just sit down and watch a band perform in front of them. They'd be singing Christian songs and they'd be doing songs probably that we'd be familiar with here or at the time we would have been, but the congregation are sitting there and they're not participating, they're just watching. And it completely shocked me. I had no idea that that was also kind of what happened in some churches over there when it came to the worship time. And so in our church, I kind of made it my mission to try and help people understand that worship is something we do as a congregation together and most importantly that it was an incredibly powerful part of what we do when we gather together In church. And so in my church, we started talking about it. We talked about the theology of worship. And then we decided to put on these worship evenings once a month. And we said to everyone, come to these worship meetings, prioritize them in your calendar, and we're going to go for it in worship. And I promise you, it will be incredibly powerful. We'll encounter the living God. Amazing things will happen. It's going to be very, very powerful. And so inevitably, people came along to these worship evenings. And I'll never forget the first worship evening. We kick it off and I'm about three songs in to the worship and I've got my eyes shut because I'm used to kind of everyone just staring at me whilst I'm singing, which is deeply awkward. And I'm kind of doing the usual prayer of, Lord, please help people to worship. And I kind of open my eyes a little bit and I catch a glimpse right at the back of the warehouse, which is where we held church over there. These circles of fire close to the ceiling just going round and round and round. I shut my eyes and I said, Lord, it's happening. The glory of God has come down. This is going to be powerful. I can see God's fire moving at the back of this warehouse. Thank you, Jesus, that it's happening. We're going to get caught up in praise. And I carried on about a song later, I dared open my eyes again. And there's this woman stood at the back of church and she's got two pieces of rope and she's tied to the end of each piece of rope, this ball of cloth. And I kid you not, she set fire to the cloth and she's spinning it around her head like something out of the Lord of the Rings. And uh, we actually had to cancel the service. and uh, She almost set fire to these bits of material we had hanging off the top of the warehouse. And I never did a worship evening again. No, I did. We did it later on. What's your expectation when you come to worship together? We all come with different Expectations. For some of us, we have very low expectations. And sometimes that's for good reason because it's a struggle to even get to church on Sunday morning. Some of you have come here and you've had a fight with your kids to get them to eat breakfast. You've had to fight them to get their coats on, to get their shoes on. You've had to fight them into the car and put them in their car seats. You've probably had an argument with them. You've probably had an argument with your wife or husband on the way. And you get into church and you bundle in the back door and you're exhausted and you're not even thinking about the worship in fact the whole time you're probably thinking how do I get my kids in there so I can have 30 minutes break from the children Sunday morning so that I can relax the last thing on your mind probably is worship Some of us will come in with indifference to worship, either because we haven't really experienced worship before or we haven't really learned about what worship should be and how we should be worshiping and relating to God in worship. Some of us are confused about it. Some of us are passive in our worship. We don't really enjoy it. We don't really like the songs, if we're honest. And this idea of singing together on a Sunday morning is a little bit strange unless you're at a gig and everyone knows the songs and they sing together. Some people feel exposed when they come to worship. It makes them nervous. We're all crammed in, sitting next to each other, and you don't like the sound of your voice. You certainly don't like the sound of the voice of the person standing next to you, and you feel nervous, you feel exposed, you don't really enjoy it. It's all a bit awkward. Why are people shutting their eyes? Why are people putting their hands up? This is very strange. And then others of us come to worship, and we're pursuing a feeling, and we go, I really hope I feel something In worship today, I really want to feel the presence of God. And often we interpret that as getting emotional or we cry during worship. And when we get to the end of the worship time, if we haven't experienced the feeling, if we haven't cried in worship, we say, Worship wasn't very good today, was it? And we kind of write it off and hope it's better next week. What's your expectation when you come to worship together on a Sunday morning? Well, here's a little bit of an overview. Of the worship throughout the Bible. As I said, Christians and the people of God have been singing these kind of songs in worship to God for centuries and centuries. centuries. This is the Old Testament perspective. Now in the Old Testament, if you read it, this is all the bits before Jesus. Worship happened in a building. So God's presence was uniquely present in something they called the temple. Now during the time of David, it was a tabernacle because they were on the move and they would set up this huge tent and they would worship in the tent and they would put in the tent what they called the Ark of the Covenant. In the Ark of the Covenant was the law of Moses and they believed that God uniquely dwelt in that tabernacle. And so when they came to worship, they they would experience the presence of God in the tabernacle. Now, during the time of Solomon, they were settled in Jerusalem, and he built this incredible temple. And the Jewish people believed that when they came to worship in the temple, God's presence was uniquely present in that temple building. So the expectation was that we come to the temple in order to meet God. We're coming to worship to encounter the presence of God. And this caused many problems in Old Testament worship. The biggest problem they had was that they believed that God was uniquely holy. So God was above all things. He was perfect in every way. And so therefore, in order to be able to approach God in the, like, as people with all our imperfections and everything we do to separate ourselves from God, the Bible calls it sin, it causes a problem when we come into the presence of God because it means that we're unable to get close because we feel inadequate. And so as a result, in Old Testament times, there's this incredibly complex ritual of the people of God coming into the presence of God in worship. And here is an incredibly detailed diagram so as to show you how that happened. Basically, they built a temple and in the temple were the outer courts. Now anyone was allowed in the outer courts. This was kind of the outside wall of the temple, and in the Bible we read that the people entered the temple courts with thanksgiving and praise. So they would come in literally worshipping into the gates, and they'd be singing about the character and the faithfulness of God. They'd be reminding each other of the stories of God, how God has uniquely worked through the nation of Israel, and they would enter into the courts of God. Now in the side of the outer courts were the inner courts. Now the inner courts were a little bit different In the the inner courts, only the Jewish people were allowed to go in and probably sometimes only the male Jewish people. And it was in the inner courts that they would start to present sacrifices to God, which seems incredibly archaic to us. They'd have an altar and they'd bring animal sacrifices and they'd make sacrifices before they progressed further into the temple. And the reason they did that was because of the problem I just talked about. This idea that a perfect God, in order for us to be able to come into the presence of a perfect God, we have to do something about our imperfections. Affections. And so for the Jewish people, they would present sacrifices, and they believed in something called atonement, which meant that as they sacrificed these animals, they would be able to move further into the presence of God. And it's in the inner courts where they would start to think of this idea of sacrifice, and they would do this together. And then further into the temple was a place called the Holy Place. It's getting to the business end of the temple. And in the holy place, only the priests would be able to go in on the recognition that the priests were set apart from the people of God so that they were able to be able to get further into the presence of God and then intercede on behalf of the people of Israel. So the priests would only go in there and then right at the center of the temple was what they called the most holy place. And into the most holy place, The only person able to go in was a guy as part of the nation of Israel called the great high priest. And he only went in once a year during the day of atonement. And there's a little Jewish myth that um, says that they used to tie a rope around his ankle. Because it was a dangerous place in the most holy place. And when he got into the most holy place, regularly the great high priest would die because he did something wrong beforehand in the presence of this holy, incredible God. And they'd have to pull him out by his ankle, by the rope. Um, Which we don't know if that happened, but I think it's quite funny, so I thought I'd say it. Anyway, the point of this temple worship is this. There's this progression into the presence of God. Starts in the outer courts. Into the inner courts, they present these sacrifices so they can be holy and pleasing to God, and they go in and in and in right into the most holy place where the literal presence and power of God dwelt. The whole point of the worship of the nation of Israel was that they expected to encounter the living power and presence of God in their worship. So, what does this mean for us? We're not Jewish. But our faith is rooted in Jewish history. We don't worship in a temple, do we? What does that mean for us in our worship? Well, in the New Testament, there's a huge shift that takes place and it's probably best expressed when Paul says this. He's talking about worship in his letter to the church in Corinth. And he's telling the people in Corinth and he kind of talks to them about worship. he says this, don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit lives among you you yourselves are God's temple and God's spirit lives within you there's a massive shift between the old testament and the new testament whereas in the old testament they come to a building and there's this progression into the presence of God in the new testament there's this expectation that as Christians we are the living temple Peter puts it like this in his letter, 1 Peter, he says we are like living stones being built up into the temple. When we come together and we worship, we host the presence of God and the power of God among us. But what does that actually mean? Because that sounds quite ethereal, it sounds quite hard to understand. Well, in order to really begin to understand the significance of what happens in this shift from the Old Testament to the New Testament, we have to go right back to the beginning Of the Old Testament. Now, if you've read Genesis, you'll know that it's all about the creation of the earth. And so, the writer of Genesis is writing about God creating the heavens and the earth. And it says that there was chaos amongst the heavens and the earth. And then God spoke, and He started bringing order into the chaos. He spoke, and He separated light from darkness. He spoke, and see was separated from land and he goes on and he creates the animals and then it's kind of going at a really fast pace as you read the narrative and then it slows down so as to emphasize the climax of the whole creative process which was the creation of humanity and it says this then God said let us make mankind in our image in our likeness in our image in our likeness now that is the most written about verse in the entire Bible. And the reason it's the most written about verse in the entire Bible is because it goes right to the heart of who we are as humans, the Christian understanding of what it means to be human. And the problem with that verse is there's not many places in the Bible where those words for image and likeness are used again. And so as to understand words, they would look at other places where it's used in the Old Testament. And these particular words were only used in the Old Testament in relation to idols of other ancient Near Eastern religions. And so these other ancient Near Eastern religions would carve these idols out of stone and out of wood, and they would go through these really um, strange birthing processes where they believe that this idol... Idol would literally come to embody the power and the presence of God it represented and then they would place these idols about their kingdom and into other kingdoms that they captured and became to rule over and they believed that it was through these idols that their God would rule and reign and the presence and power of their God would be. Now of course we know looking back at that that they're just idols they're made of wood and they're made of stone. And so the writer of Genesis is setting the nation of Israel and Judaism apart from every other ancient Near Eastern religion and saying, whereas the idols of other ancient Near Eastern religions are mute and they're dumb and they can't do what they're created to do, the humanity, the idols of Judaism are alive and are filled with the presence and the power of God and actually able to do what they're created to do. Now, how does that relate to the New Testament? Well, you'll know if you read the Old Testament that sin enters the world, this separation between humanity and God, and as a result of that, the identity of humanity, which was established in carrying the power and the presence of God, starts to unravel throughout the story, and we see it happen in the nation of Israel, but then Jesus bursts onto the scene. And Jesus is the first fully human, fully divine person to embody what that actually looks like, to be made in the image and the likeness of God. And this has profound effects on our worship. Paul puts it like this. This is one of the most used passages in the New Testament. On worship, And if you've read Romans, you'll know the first 10 chapters of Romans, Paul's basically giving a treatise of what it is to be Christian, what Christianity is all about. And he's talking about the significance of what Jesus has done on the cross. And by the end of chapter 10, he's overcome with emotion, and he can't do anything but start to worship. He starts kind of singing his own song of worship. It's called a doxology. And it says this, he says, Oh, the depths of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable his judgments, how his past pastor beyond tracing out who has known the mind of God and then he ends his little worship session he says for from him and through him and for him are all things to him be the glory of God forever amen and then he talks about what worship is about he says therefore I urge you brothers and sisters in view of God's mercy offer your bodies as a living sacrifice holy and pleasing to God this is your true and proper worship Do not conform to the pattern of this will, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds. What does that mean for our worship? Well, what we see in the text there is this journey into the presence of God. You see, the Old Testament and the New Testament aren't two separate faiths. It's not like you should completely separate them out. And so as Christians, we should totally ignore what's happened in the Old Testament. They marry together in the most incredible way. And so when Paul's talking about worship here in Romans, it mirrors what would have happened in the temple for the Old Testament people. And so here's the temple again. We've got this journey from the outer courts into the most holy place. And when Paul's talking about worship, that same journey is going on from being in the outer courts right into the most holy place. So he starts with this doxology, with this worship, for from him and through him and for him are all things. To him be the glory forever. And the idea is that our worship should always start singing about the character of God, singing about the faithfulness of God, singing about how incredible God is. And I think that's so important when we worship together because it reminds ourselves of why we're worshiping. So often we come in and we're confused and we're all on different pages. We're all coming from different perspectives. We all have different expectations. And when we gather together and we sing the same words about the faithfulness of God who is eternal and existed forever, we start to get onto the same page and realize why we're here and why we're worshiping. But worship doesn't end there. It carries on this journey into the presence of God. Paul then says, in view of God's mercy... Offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. What's he talking about there with mercy? He's talking about the perfect sacrifice. So, whereas in the Old Testament, they would have to sacrifice these animals so as to be able to be worthy enough to get into the presence of God, the difference with the New Testament and because of Jesus is he is the one ultimate perfect sacrifice. And if we give our lives to him and we come through him into the presence of God, we're able to make this journey into the most powerful place on earth. And the only adequate response to that, as we think about the mercy of God, as we sing songs about what Jesus has done on the cross and the significance, Significance of that for us. The only adequate response is that we give our whole lives to him, that we sacrifice our lives to him. The writer of Hebrews puts it like this. He says, therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way open for us through the curtain, that is his body. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart with the full assurance that faith brings. The beauty of that is that you can come into the presence of God exactly as you are. You don't need to work anything up. You don't need to feel guilty because you've not been worshipping God in the week. You don't need to come feeling inadequate if we go through the person of Jesus if we ask for his forgiveness for all of those things that we've done in our weeks and in our days and in our lives that separates us from the presence of God then we can trust that we are able to go with full assurance of faith into the most holy of places so what happens in the most holy of places and in the temple it would have been divided by this big curtain. So you've got the holy place and then there's this huge curtain that goes from the top of the ceiling right down to the floor. And when Jesus died, we read in the Gospel of Mark that the curtain was torn in two. And therefore, we're then able to become and move into the most holy place. And Paul puts it like this. This is what happens in the most holy place. We're transformed by the renewing of our minds. You see, when we come into the power and the presence of God, we can't help but be changed as a result and that word that Paul uses there for transformed is the Greek word metamorpho and that's the same word that we get for the process when we talk about larvae going into butterflies the so metamorphosis so we talk about this in nature all of the time exactly the same thing is supposed to happen when we worship as we remember who God is as we talk about his faithfulness we sing about his character and as we prom- take um, for real the promise of what Jesus has done on the cross as we move into the most holy place then we should start to become transformed by the renewing of our minds. What does that look like? It looks like going back to Genesis 1. This is where the whole Bible works together as a massive narrative, because as we worship God through the person of Jesus, as we come into his presence, we start to become transformed and we become who we were originally created to be, the image and the likeness of God on earth. And so I guess this is the point of what I'm trying to say in everything. Our worship should be powerful. It should be incredibly powerful powerful. When we meet together, we should be experiencing the transforming of the renewing of our minds. We should be being renewed in the person of Jesus into the people we were originally created to be. I've shared my story quite a bit. In church on different occasions, but worship was always a huge part of my coming faith or to faith or coming back to faith in the in the early days at uni when I started going to church every time I walked into any kind of worship context, I couldn't stop crying. Like I'd walk in and if there were songs happening, I'd just start weeping straight away. Now, I wasn't really prone to weeping. In fact, I was pretty unemotional as a person. Um, And I would walk into these worship environments, I'd just start crying straight away. And it would happen week after week after week after week. Every time there was worship going on, I would start crying. And there was one particular uh, worship evening at the church I was going to at the time where it was basically an hour and a half, just a free worship. So we were just worshiping for an hour and a half. And um, it was just for the worship team who were a part of the church, which I was a part of. And about half an hour into the worship, as we were singing these songs to God, about God and with God, and we were talking about his sacrifice, what Jesus has done on the cross, all that that means for us was singing these songs. It was literally like the presence of God just just came down into the meeting where we were worshipping. And I kid you not, the whole of the worship team hit the floor. In the Old Testament, the glory of God is directly translated as the weight of God. It was like a weight came on us, and all we could do is we could lie on the floor. But the presence and the power of God came in the fullest sense as we experienced it there. It was like we were in the Holy of Holies. And it was in that place that someone, um, people started praying for each other, as this was happening. And someone came up to me and knelt down beside me and said, when I'm looking at you and I'm praying, I see this image of this land and the land is all broken up. It's got all these cracks and these crevices in the land. And as I'm looking at this land, these cracks and these crevices, I just see this lava start moving over the land and filling the cracks and going across the entire picture. And then when it finishes at the end, it's like a completely new foundation has been set, like a totally new land has been formed as a result. And this person said, I think that's what God's doing in your life right now. He's filling in all of these cracks, all of these imperfections, and he's creating a new foundation for you in your life. In worship. And unbeknownst to me at the time, that is exactly what happens in the Bible as so we read about this idea of transformation, the renewing of our minds. What's happening is the power and the presence of God is coming into our lives, right into the center of our being and renewing us from the inside out. We're starting to become the people we were originally created to be. It's like we have this new foundation in our lives that we can stand firm on and we can go out and we can be who we're called to be. Worship. Is powerful, and it's why, by the way, that we should start to expect the gifts of the Spirit to be expressed during worship. Um, if you read 1 Corinthians. Paul's talking to the church in Corinth about the gifts of the Holy Spirit. Now, clearly, they had some out there worship services. They were clearly quite um, brilliant in many ways. And Paul's writing to them and saying, when you gather together in worship, it's brilliant that all the gifts of the Spirit are being expressed. There's all this power. There's lots of stuff going on. And he writes to them and says, you might want to try and bring a little bit of order to your worship services. And he starts um, in chapter 13, 12, probably. He says, eagerly desire the gifts of the Holy Spirit. So he's affirming them. He's saying it's brilliant that when you worship together, there's power. There's the gifts of the Spirit expressed, but make sure you do it in order so that it's kind of productive in a way. Now, if Paul were here now today in the Anglican church or in any church in the UK, I don't think he would walk into the back of our church and see absolute carnage when he walks in. What he'll probably see is a lot of English people with their hands in their pockets, looking around, feeling a little bit awkward. I think if Paul were here today, I think he'd be wanting to remind us, eagerly desire the gifts of the Spirit when you worship together. What does he mean by that? Expect worship to be more powerful. Two of the gifts of the Spirit that he talks a lot about in the letter to the church in Corinth, the first is prophecy, which I just talked about. That's what that person did, just essentially shared a prophecy with me. And prophecy is there for the building up of the church. So I felt built up up when she shared that prophecy with me. It makes sense that when we journey in worship to the most holy place, when we start to travel into the presence and the power of God, it makes sense that we start to hear God more accurately. There's, not, there's less of a barrier between us and God, so we start hearing his voice. Should, we should expect to be prophesying over each other when we worship. Another gift of the Spirit is um, the gift of speaking or singing in tongues. Now people freak out about this gift, but it's incredibly simple. The thing about singing or speaking in tongues is there's moments in life where the human language seems to be limited in order to be able to give us the words to respond to what we're feeling or seeing or experiencing at the time. For example, when you're really happy, often there's no words to express how happy you are. When you're incredibly happy, you just end up screaming, "Ah!" And you're just happy. It's like joy just coming out of you. You don't really have the words to express how happy you are. When you're really sad and something's gone terribly, terribly wrong, there's often no words to express how sad you're feeling. And all you tend to do is you put your head in your hands and you groan. You go, oh, and you just groan because you've run out of words. Tongues is the gift given to us to transcend the limits of human language so that we're able to express our love and our adoration to God. Because this is what's supposed to happen when we worship together. We're supposed to be lost for words. At some point, those songs will run out because they're inadequate to express how much God means to us and all that he's done. That's where the gift of tongues comes in. I often like to think it's a little bit like when my mum met Elia, um, my first daughter, for the first time. And she had her in her arms and she's looking into Elia's eyes and she's cuddling her tight and she's just kind of just making noises loads of noises and then she's looking at Elia and she's just kind of making these noises and she goes oh I could just eat you which she doesn't mean because that's cannibalism it's wrong why do we say that it makes no sense what's actually happening there she just run out of words totally run out of words to express how much she loves Elia we should have the same experience when we worship God hence why we sing and we speak in tongues so worship is powerful. When we worship, we should expect to be practicing the gifts of the Holy Spirit. We're being transformed by the renewing of our minds. We're starting to become the people we were originally created to be, filled with the power and the presence of God. So the final thing before we worship, is that it? Do we just come in and have a really nice, powerful experience and then leave and go home and wake up the next day and eat cornflakes and go into work? Hopefully not. Because there's a second part to this creation story in Genesis one. So God created mankind in his own image, in the image of God, he created the male and female, he created them. And then it says this God blessed them. It means he spoke well of them. He blessed them and he said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish and the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. What's he saying now? Basically, the writer of Genesis is describing the mission of humanity. Humanity is being made in the image and likeness of God, of literally carrying the power and the presence of God, shouldn't be contained to the Garden of Eden. What he's saying to them is, it should expand out from the Garden of Eden into the rest of the world, and it brings order out of chaos. What does he mean by that? It means that he's renewing the whole of the universe. So as we worship, we shouldn't simply be staying here, singing songs, experiencing God, and then going out and nothing's happening. The whole point is the power that we experience in here of being filled with the power and the presence of God should burst out of this building and out into our lives and should make everything new. It's what Jesus calls bringing the kingdom of God to earth. And it's the highest mission that we're given in our lives. Paul puts it like this. He's praying for the church in Ephesus. He says this, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope which he has called you to, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people and his incomparably great power for those who believe. That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted in the heavenly realms, sorry, when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And this is the effect of worship in the church. It says this, and God placed all things under the feet of Jesus and appointed him to be the head over everything for the church, for our benefit. And here's Paul's description of the church. The body of Jesus, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. When we worship together, we're being filled with the power and the presence of God. We're becoming who we were originally created to be. As we walk out of this building, we're supposed to be filling the earth with the presence and power of Jesus. And when that happens, God starts to make all things new. The kingdom of God comes. Worship is incredibly powerful. So let's do some. Why don't we stand and I'll pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that St. Peter's will be a church that knows your incomparably great power. I pray that we would be a church that doesn't just gather together for the sake of having community, although that's good. Doesn't just gather together for the sake of doing good, although that's also good. Doesn't just gather together for the sake of singing songs, although sometimes that's fun. Lord, I pray that St. Peter's is a church known for the most powerful times of worship. That as we journey together into the most holy place, into your presence. God, that we would experience your glory. That you would fill us to overflowing with your presence. That you would make us new so that as we go out into the world, we can bring your kingdom. Come, Holy Spirit, help us as we worship you now.